0: Headquarters to all units, headquarters to all units, all units stand by for On Patrol with the PPD, airing now on WCDR 89.7 FM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to another new episode of On Patrol with the PPD here on WTBR 89.7 FM, Pittsfield Community Radio, simulcast on Pittsfield Community Television and available on all of your popular podcast platforms. Today is Friday, March 31st, 2023. And if you're tuning in today, today is another new live episode of the show. My name is Mike Wynn. I am one of the co-hosts and co-producers of this oftentimes weekly radio show, not so much recently. I'm also the chief of police here in the city of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. I'm joined in studio this morning by sound engineer extraordinaire Lieutenant Matt Hill working the board. Good morning, Chief. And we also have a couple special guests, a few special guests joining us this morning, but before I introduce them, we are going to get a check (laughs) of the weather, talk about a couple news items, and then we'll get started.
1: Berkshire Weather. Here is your WTBR forecast from BerkshireWeather.com for Friday, March 31st. Three days. Today, mostly cloudy. A high of 46 with some rain. Tonight, cloudy. A low of 39 with some rain. Tomorrow, cloudy. A high of 64 with some thunderstorms. That's your latest WTBR forecast. For more weather forecast notification go to berkshireweather.com. I'm Kim Klein for WTBR, and I hope you all have an amazing day.
0: Cheers, everyone. All right, welcome back. Just a couple few newsworthy items. Uh, It is, as I said, Friday, March 31st, 2023. I would be negligent and remiss in my duties if I didn't, at least in passing, mention the elephant in the room. Uh, Former President Donald Trump was indicted by the Manhattan District Attorney yesterday. That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, In local related news, if you are a Pittsfield resident, you're aware that uh, Pittsfield High School earlier this week... um, in addition to a couple other uh, county high schools, experienced a swatting incident that related in a lockdown. Uh, news out of the Albany area this morning: several Capital Region schools experienced similar things yesterday. And in an article from this morning's Berkshire Eagle, a uh, criminal defendant was actually found guilty in swatting calls that he committed last year. A little bit different than ours. Ours are kind of you know thrill-seeking stuff, probably generated by. Uh, you know, computers offshore just to get a rise and and to get a response. He was attempting to engage in extortion. Um, So not completely related, but it's it's proliferating and we have to be aware of it. Uh, Two more quick things, not reported in the news, but related to the Pittsfield Police Department. Over the last couple of months, the Berkshire County Special Response Team has been called on with increasing frequency to support high risk warrant services in communities outside of Pittsfield. Uh, The team has done as much work outside of Pittsfield than we've ever seen them do in a short period of time in Pittsfield, which is telling because normally we rely on our team members from other communities to support us here, but in the last couple months it's been Pittsfield officers supporting our neighboring communities. And to finish on a positive note, in PPD news, it's been 18 months since the department announced and launched our law enforcement jujitsu program uh, where our officers are given incentivized opportunities to train on their own time to increase their confidence and their capability. And uh, we marked a huge milestone last night Um, because he's not going to be available to be at our concept seminar this weekend because of pre-application pre-approved travel plans. Uh, Last night, Officer Jake Doyle earned his blue belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is an amazing accomplishment for somebody who, uh, you know, 18 months ago had never stepped on a Jiu-Jitsu mat. So congratulations, Jake. You're the first, but you won't be the last. uh, And that program is taking off. So pretty excited about that. I'm also excited to introduce our guests this morning, sneaking in under the wire to join us. Um, We have three members, three of the four members of the department's mental health uh, and law enforcement team, uh, including long-serving co-responder Ariel, who's been with us on the program before. Good morning. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. (laughs) She's uh, joined by new team member and colleague, Tony. Welcome. Good morning, dude. And also joining us is the department's social worker uh, new newly created position of social worker who is a former co-responder but also is responsible for kind of supervising the co-responder program uh richard mr richard collins welcome back
2: thank
3: you chief thank you, get, you for having us
0: here today. you guys are going to need to get a little bit closer to your mics when you're speaking all right so uh errol you've been in the hot seat before richard have you been on the show before yes i have okay yeah, that's right so you know just We'll start with Tony because he's never been here before Great. we like to get to know our guests a little bit uh, so we'll we'll have Richard and Ariel do an abbreviated version after you but why don't you just tell our listeners and viewers a little bit about you where you're from and how you got to uh, PPD
4: well I'm from North Adams um, lifetime uh, resident of the city um, most of my schooling has been done in the area uh, North Adams State College Norwich Military Academy and uh, SUNY Albany for my advanced degrees been in mental health probably 30 years uh, starting in northern Berkshire mental health up north and then has now become the Breen Center um, was there for 20 20 or so years and actually that's where I met Richard um, and became friends with him up in that area worked at the jail um, and worked up at Bennington Hospital uh, for about 10 years and have had a private practice up in Vermont and down here for about the last 10 years and retired actually just before so, covid and um when i heard richard was going to be doing this um so i think it's yeah. time to get back to work i was getting too bored coming just, out of retirement <laughs> yeah yeah
0: so we haven't discussed this but i have the opportunity now that you're in the hot seat task because i have uh, seen you driving to and from work and i pulled in this morning and um your vehicle is uniquely equipped with some communications equipment so what do you do well, when you're not working <laughs> Um, <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh, it's ham radio. Yeah. I, I do like the ham radio. Got more involved in it during COVID. It was a good way to talk to people um, and being a little more than 12 feet away. So it's just a hobby. And talk to I mean, people all over the world. Yes. That's awesome. Yes.
0: I don't think we've had a ham radio operator employed in the department since Officer Kemp retired. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been at least that long. So, yeah. All right. Ariel, for our viewers and listeners, just remind them who are you? Where are you from? How did you get here?
5: Good morning, my name's Ariel Ramirez. I am a social worker. Um, I received my master's degree from Rutgers University. Um, and since last being here, I got licensed by the state of Massachusetts.
0: Congratulations, I um, know you were working hard for that. Thank
5: you, COVID kind of uh, prolonged that process a little bit. but um, So I obtained that. I um, Prior to this was running a men's halfway house um, through the pandemic and was ready to um, be more in the community, and uh, Officer Derby actually showed up at my doorstep and said, hey, I got something for you," And uh, the rest has kind of been history.
0: I didn't know that, is that true?
5: I swear to you.
0: Derby hunted you down?
5: So he <laughs> responded to a car accident outside of the office of my nonprofit. Got and it. came upstairs and said, hey, uh, Mr. Collins is retiring. You are really good at talking to people in the community. I've got something for you."
0: He has kept that story a complete secret and totally downplayed that. We're going to have to call him out on that.
5: He he is responsible for the last uh, (laughs) two and a half years of my life, (laughs) for better or worse. He
0: has that impact on people. All right. And last but certainly not least, finally, Richard, tell our viewers and listeners a little bit about yourself.
3: Well, I, too, have been uh, in uh, mental health for 25 years or so. And certainly over the course of my tenure with the Breen Center's crisis team, uh, the last five years I co-responded with the Pittsfield Police Department. I then retired um, shortly and uh, I teach at the academies, the police academies throughout uh, Massachusetts in fact, um, which has been an honor. Uh, But when I heard about this uh, job opening up, I felt that I had a little more to to add and to offer and so um, I came back and I uh, was hired in fact on the 28th of, of uh, November and I've been here since
0: so just to kind of catch everybody up and um, get get kind of set the stage for where we are now so Richard came into my office last was the last week uh, we've had some representative of co-response in the department for seven years now um, and the way that kind of came about was not easy or clean or holistic so if we rewind the clock to i i'm I'm, i think the last time i checked we tried to narrow down the dates it was 12 or 13 years ago there was some changes in the regulations in the commonwealth that basically required that our mental health partners in the community under the previous model the uh, esp model emergency services provider model be able to provide some capability for field deployed clinicians or social workers to law enforcement in order to de-escalate or keep situations um, stable in the community. And although that was a requirement, like many things that come from the Commonwealth, it was an unfunded mandate. So the requirement was put in place, but no resources were really put in place to accomplish it. And so what was happening was basically a hodgepodge that we would respond in the community, make a phone call. Sometimes people were available. Sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they would talk to us over the phone. Sometimes they would agree to meet us at the station. Sometimes they would agree to meet us at the hospital. We just never really knew. Um, and then, and correct me if I'm wrong, Richard, but you kind of reached out and established a relationship with Lieutenant Bradford.
3: That's correct. Right? Yes.
0: And um, Lieutenant Bradford kind of set the lay of the land and you know what what was happening, what we thought was supposed to happen, and then one day, uh, Lieutenant Bradford and Richard presented, and they're like, we have an idea, and Richard wants to do this. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and you were employed by the Brien Center. That's correct. Right? Yes. So you, you were employed by the Brien Center. I'm not going to ask you to get into what you said or did to convince the Brien Center to embed you with us, <laughs> but after a lot of hard work on your part, um, you relocated. You co-located to the station. You were given a radio call sign. Uh, Signed a radio, kind of uh, read into the operations pace of what was going on, and you just started hanging out, listening to calls, going on calls, and helping the officers deal with people in crisis with the goal of keeping patients in the community. Uh, And you accomplished that. You accomplished that in an amazing way.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Uh,
0: but there was a couple intangibles that came about as a result of that. And I've talked about both of these in the past. The first intangible was that by going on calls with you and watching you interact with members of the community, the officers gained new skills and improved their skill set so that they were able to de escalate and keep people in the community, even on calls that you weren't with them for. They increased their capability. So our, our transports for mental health and people in crisis went down significantly. And then... That you also established some relationships, so you were able to break some barriers and get our officers talking about some of the stuff that was happening for them. And so we saw a improvement in our officers' wellness and resiliency. And so, going again, we're going back five, six years now. The first time that we actually stopped and looked at the numbers based on your interaction, and we kind of tracked it over time, we saw a 60% reduction in transports by cruiser to the hospital for persons in crisis
3: that's correct you know i'm very proud of that number and we were helping people stay in the community safely uh, and connecting them with services of course
0: now obviously from a point of compassion if we can keep a patient in the community and they can be connected with services and they can remain in their home and they can do follow-ups either in their home or in outpatient that's great and you should be proud of that and i'm proud of that But from the chief's point of view, a 60% reduction in the people that we are taking in custody against their will, placing in handcuffs and physically transporting while they're uncooperative or resistant via cruiser. That's a massive, massive reduction in liability. It's a massive reduction in liability. It's a massive reduction in exposure. It's a massive reduction in frustration and aggravation on the part of the officers who have to make those apprehensions in those transports. So that's nothing to be just glossed over. It, that's a huge accomplishment for a law enforcement agency. And over the last five plus years when I've traveled, sometimes with you, sometimes um, with other members of the administration, to talk to other communities about that number, that's the number that makes people sit up and take notice. Uh, because if you can by more than half, reduce the number of times you got to take somebody who is not a criminal defendant physically into custody. That's huge, uh, and so with that number in mind, we really had to figure out a way to not just continue the program but improve the program. So you were with us for what five years? Five, a four little over five years. years. Uh, and during that time, you not only were recognized by us, but you were recognized by your colleagues. Um, they they knew that you were doing something unique and making. Uh, making a contribution not only to our community but beyond because like you said you were starting to teach at the academies and work with some of our services uh, then you decided to retire deservedly so and when you decided to retire we took a look at it and we found out we had to hire two people <laughs> to do the work that you were doing so we looked at the brand center uh, we went through some uh, missteps and false starts we were trying to figure out if the city of pittsfield could just independently contract with people who would come in and do it and so we posted contract positions um, using some funds uh, from the department's operating budget and some grant funds we got some interested applicants we went through the process but we realized very quickly my staff didn't have any we weren't going to be able to manage this program and so despite the fact that that was kind of the director we were given We reached out again to our community partners from the Breen Center. We said, we need a little help. And so we gave them the resumes and the cover letters for the people that we had looked at. uh, And we said, anything you can do to help us. And so that changed the face. So instead of paying independent contractors, we entered into a contract based on kind of a scope of services with Brian for them to provide us with Brian Center employees who would work under contract with us and continue to correspond. So we got Ariel.
2: Yes.
5: And
0: we got Tess. Oh,
5: still one of my favorite people
0: on the <laughs> yeah. planet today. We miss Tess. I miss her. Um, and the program continued and expanded, uh, but it, it was, again, not clean and it wasn't easy. It was kind of in fits and starts uh, because it was uncharted territory. You, at the, at the end of your career with the Brand Center, you had a certain amount of latitude uh, that they weren't able to or in some cases willing to give to the aerial and And so there was a little bit more oversight there was a little bit um, more coordination we we kind of to the best of our ability worked through it um and that was kind of where we were uh, when unfortunately uh, just over a year ago we had a critical incident an officer involved shooting uh, in the city of pittsfield that unfortunately occurred during a gap in coverage right you, you had just gone off duty they actually okay. stayed over that night and then just gone off duty uh and the yeah. officers um, on their first response de-escalated uh, disarmed and de-escalated and then got called back and were not able to for a variety of reasons that we won't get into during this show
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, but then we got some pressure from the community and in addition to the operating funds that we already had we had essentially taken the salary for two sworn police officer positions, and moved it into a contract line item that we were working to fund the brand Center. I was asked uh, to locate another pool of money within the department's um, funds, re- you know, revenue funds, and allocate that to mental health. So, uh, you know, with the approval of Mayor Tire. We did that, and essentially we ended up with a, a pool of money from various sources that came out to just under. Um, A quarter of a million dollars that we could start to look at expanding this program. Uh, And so conversation was had with the administration at various levels. And the initial decision was made that the city was going to employ a social worker, uh, essentially as as a cabinet member, as an advisor, to advise me and the mayor and the director of public health and anybody else that was interested, uh, library director, uh, RSVP and senior center director, what we should be doing to improve mental health in the city. Uh, And then the decision was made, and I strongly supported this decision, that that position, the city social worker, would be placed in the health department, not the police department. Because I didn't think the police department should be the lead agency for developing citywide protocols or standards for mental health in the community. But as we went through the process of assisting Director Camby and the health department in creating a job description for the city's social worker, I realized that we had a unique intersection with the mental health community. And it was gonna be overly burdensome for the city's social worker to work with the police department to help my staff and I figure out how the police department should intersect with mental health services. So I went back to the mayor and said, I fully support the city social worker But the PD needs one, too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And fortunately, uh, she agreed, uh, Mayor uh, Director Camby agreed, uh, Director Kerwood, the finance director agreed, and Director Taylor, the human resources director agreed. So instead of getting one social worker, we got two. And we posted the position, and Richard came back. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: (laughs) And I was so happy, literally, when you came back. So what brought you back, Richard?
3: Well, as I was saying, you know, I, I just feel like I have a little more uh, to offer, and um, this is a very unique position for me to oversee and supervise um, what I consider very elite clinicians.
0: So, one of the first things you were tasked with when uh, we brought you back on board, because we didn't, we at that point, um, your Ariel was. Ariel was holding the, keeping the ship afloat and kind of staring the course. Uh, Tess had left to go back into private practice. Uh, we had the funding, but we didn't have the resources. Richard came on board, and one of your first tasks was to go through a hiring process, assisted by Lieutenant Bradford, to vet potential candidates to come on in the newly funded, created and funded city. Mental health co-responder, or emergency co-responder positions. So you went through a pile of resumes and, yes. and several interviews, and ultimately you came through that process at, with uh, two additional candidates. That's correct. Yeah. So let's uh, let's get to that point where you identified those two additional candidates.
3: Well, one of the things that we had to look at is uh, how can we best help the department, and so in doing, making that decision, it felt like. A four and two schedule which matched the officers um, would be most beneficial so we started from that vantage point and we went through these interviews um, and it was difficult to be very honest with you to find candidates that were able and willing to do such a thing as that Um, so that was our starting place and we did find uh, two very very good clinicians but I do want to also mention that this is a hybrid model and Ariel who still works with the Breen Center's crisis team is with us today. And I'm so thankful for that as well. It's an honor to work uh, with this kind of model.
0: So I want to, because I want to take a little responsibility and, and, you know, take a little ownership on that. So one of the things that happened with this, and I don't think most of our viewers and listeners would understand this. In municipal government, unlike in Mm -hmm. private business, we can't just create a job, right? The jobs that exist Mm -hmm. in city government, they're embedded in the code. And so the process of creating a job is you create a job description, you do a justification, you find a funding source, and then this process starts with where the human resources director has to sign off on everything, and then he sends it to a group of people called the Personnel Review Board. The Personnel Review Board is some city employees together with some appointed residents or volunteers. They ask the person who is looking to create the new job, in this case, me, a bunch of questions. They they ask the finance director a bunch of questions. They look at the financing, they look at the funding, and then they vote whether or not they think these this position or these positions have value. And then they send it to the city council. And then the council has to approve these new positions and then they're embedded in the code. And once they're embedded in the code, if you wanna make changes to them, you have to go back and do that whole process over. You can't just change stuff. So when we were working up and developing the job descriptions based on some job descriptions and from some other agencies and based on the model that we had had going into it, uh, we essentially created them as administrative position jobs, which for us means a five-day on, two-day off schedule, usually between seven to seven and a half hours a day. Um, But once the positions were created and posted under that, the internal conversation among the people who were going to be supervising this on the ops side was, No, we need to align these schedules with the patrol schedules. There needs to be more continuity between the officers who are going to be relying on these positions and the co-responders who are going to be supporting the officers, and we couldn't just change it. So it it required a lot of negotiation and a lot of flexibility, and it also caused some difficulty, Uh, but you navigated it and got through it. And so uh, ultimately you working with Lieutenant Bradford prevailed. And uh, so we managed to find co-responders who could and were willing to work on the four and two schedule and patrol uh, and keep Ariel uh, in in the hybrid model, which I am thankful for also. Um, But that required, I mean, I think I get this a lot even with our fellow departments. People forget that we operate seven days a week, 24 hours a day, every day of the year. (coughs) So you came up with a number of people that you would need at minimum to, for us to get to 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week uh, coverage. And that m- amount of money that I mentioned, that you know, 250000 thousand thereabouts—it thereabouts, it was, it's nowhere near enough to actually accomplish that. That's a we're going to need more resources if we're ever going to get to that number. Now, your number is a little bit lower than the number that I threw out when I was pre- projecting because I basically said, look, if we want to do this right, we need 18 people because that's what we would need to cover all six patrol groups on all three shifts uh, and cover for vacations and stuff like that. we're going to get somewhere between 3 and 18. <laughs> it's <laughs> not going to be 18. <laughs> all right. but So you found Tony and Jackie. Yes. And we onboarded them right after the beginning of the year? It was so, the 23rd of okay. January. Okay. And uh, so now we're growing this program. Yes. So how's it
3: going? <laughs> um. Well... That's a good question, and uh, it, it's certainly difficult, but um, the onboarding after that had taken place. Uh, well, we got started and uh, got through orientation, and so it's it's been a, l- um, a real pleasure to get to know these personalities and to work with them uh, on the street. They're very professional individuals, um, pretty well-trained, certainly uh, in regards to Tony and Ariel, of course. Um, and we're training further, and with the hope of uh, expanding further, as you had mentioned. So, so I think in that regard, it's going well. We we are seeing a number of people. We're getting calls. Uh, this month of uh, March has been um, has exceeded the two months prior uh, by the number of calls, and we're doing some really really good work out here in the community.
0: So we've only got a couple minutes left before we have to take a break for station identification, so I don't want to get into a lot of detail about the actual operational program. We'll hold off on that. Um, but in the couple minutes we have left, the, the, the team has also stepped into new territory uh, that we didn't previously do. So the in-service rotation for uniform personnel, sworn personnel that we just wrapped up, included a block of instruction on trauma-informed policing. It's probably the fourth mental health-focused topic we've had in the last four years. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a constant presence in the Municipal Police Training Committee's training requirements now. But the training unit looked at the curriculum and the overview and they're like, yeah, uh, we're not going to go to the train-the-trainer for this and have a bunch of cops stand in front of a bunch of cops, repeating and reading off the slides. We have subject matter experts in the department who can do this better. So you got to present to the in-service blocks for a six-week rotation.
3: That's correct. Uh, and I've had the assistance of the two people sitting, or actually the three people um, that are working with me. Uh, but there's certainly the two people uh, sitting beside me today. Uh, they have really stepped up and, and, and taken this, uh, you know, under their charge and, and have done a very, very nice job in that presentation of, uh, to the officers. Our hope is, and what we talk about, is that we someday will be sitting in the office, in the uh, audience, and and, uh, allowing officers to teach us what they know because we have learned that uh, they are very educated individuals, uh, very professional people who uh, have a lot to offer to us.
0: Well, we can very (coughs) easily place each one of you in a training group and assign you to in-service. Obviously, you don't have to go to all the blocks of instruction, but the ones that you think are pertinent, you're more than welcome to join the in-service rotation.
3: Well, I've always said, you know, Chief, that, that uh, an integrated approach, you know, a, a model takes that integrated approach. And so so that's what we're looking for is, is to join in uh, even more so in the trainings that you have.
0: So... Our department is very fortunate in that unlike many of the smaller communities that surround us, we we have a training unit. We have a stable of qualified and uh, up-to-date instructors. And so we don't always have to send people on the road to get our in-service training. We run our own in-service training program. That's the upside. The downside is, uh, though we have many instructors, we don't have nearly as many instructors as we have topics that we're required to cover. So our people see the same six eight, ten officers standing in front of them, presenting on a variety of topics, and it gets old. I've been an instructor and trainer long enough that I can see when the you know is glass over and they're not paying attention. So to have the ability to bring people with completely unique backgrounds into the training classroom, the training environment, is incredibly valuable because they spent a lot more time and attention listening to you than they would have if it was me or Officer Gaynor or any of our other subject matter uh, instructors. So I'm happy that the decision was made to include you in the training for that block and I'm glad it went so well. Uh, I I loved my in-service block uh, this year. It was it was not yeah. only a joy not to be up there doing it but it was <laughs> you, it was a joy to hear a different perspective. So We're coming up right on the half hour, so we're going to break now for another check of the weather and some PSAs, and then we'll come back and we'll get into some of the nuts and bolts of the implementation of the co responder program.
1: Here is your WTBR forecast from BerkshireWeather.com for Friday, March 31st. Greetings! Today, mostly cloudy, a high of 46 with some rain. Tonight, cloudy, a low of 39 with some rain. Tomorrow, cloudy, a high of 64 with some thunderstorms. That's your latest WTBR forecast. For more with the forecast education, go to BerkshireWeather.com. I'm James Klein for WTBR, and I hope you all have an amazing day. Cheers, everyone.
0: Support for WTBR comes from Greylock Federal Credit Union, proud to support high school arts and sports programs to help our community thrive. Greylock Federal with locations throughout the Berkshires and online at Greylock.org. Missed an episode of your favorite show? Have no fear, because we have podcasts. Type in WTBRFM.com forward slash podcast on your favorite browser and search for your favorite show. It's that simple. Is your little one safe inside your vehicle? Is the child seat installed properly? Is it the correct seat for your child? Hi, this is Sergeant Mark Madeline with the Pittsfield Police Department reminding you to please keep your children safe. Follow the safety seat manufacturer's recommendations for height and weight and check NHTSA's website or our Facebook page for recommendations. If you have a question or would like your seat installation checked, please contact our department at 413-448-9700, extension 575. Our officers are certified safety seat installers. Thank you. This message is brought to you by the Pittsfield Police Department in cooperation with WTBR-FM.
5: Hi, this is Officer Darren Derby with the Pittsfield Police Department. Folks, unfortunately, drug use is a driving factor for a lot of crime taking place in our city. The most prevalent crime being theft. Please, take the extra time to ensure that your belongings are safe inside your vehicle. Do not leave anything of value in plain sight. Hide your belongings. Place them in your trunk or take anything of value out of the vehicle. Always keep your vehicle locked. Don't make it easy for them. This message is brought to you by the Pittsfield Police Department in cooperation with WTBR-FM.
0: Good morning. Welcome back to another new episode of On Patrol with the PPD here on WTVR 89.7 FM Pittsfield Community Radio, simulcast on Pittsfield Community Television and available on all your popular podcast platforms. If you're just joining us, this is a live in-studio episode. It's Friday, March 31st, 2023. We've been having a conversation with the members of the department's mental health emergency co-responder team. We Led into the station break, talking about kind of the backgrounds of our three guests this morning and the creation and growth and improvement of the program. We finished up talking about them providing training uh, in our in-service rotation for our sworn personnel, and now we're gonna, you know, kind of shift gears and, and get into the actual operation of the program and, and what the program accomplishes. So um, let's see. Let's go with Ariel. If you had to describe the the goal or the objectives of the co-responder program in layperson's terms, how would you do that?
5: Ooh, um, You know, from different perspectives. So the perspective of the community members, our goal is to provide them support in the community um, with what we call least restrictive uh, practices. So if that can be done in the community, um, allowing that to play out and not... Um, you know compound any existing trauma um, by then taking them into custody and and requiring them to go to the hospital so from a community perspective that's our first uh, paramount goal subsequent to that is um... you know reducing the strain on both the police system and the hospital system and making sure that you know those partners have really been um, overutilized I think because of COVID, and when there's nobody else that's who that's who you call Um, so really doing our best to take off of those two systems what we can um, when appropriate and safe and sparing the community for their trauma
0: so over the last definitely several years due to COVID but really if we look historically Mm -hmm over the last 20-plus years, for a variety of reasons that we don't have to get into today because it would be too time-consuming, the shift in resources for mental health situations in the community, what we'd say persons in crisis calls, Mm -hmm. has shifted dramatically to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the 911 system, lack of other resources, lack of knowledge, whatever. But if a family has a family member, a loved one, who is in crisis and they're not already receiving services or if they are receiving services but they've reached out and those services are not available, the default position is call Mm 911. And if you call 911, chances are, depending on what you say and what you describe, there's a real good chance, a a better than likely chance, that that initial response is going to be a police officer. Mm -hmm. Um, we, We learned Unfortunately, tragically, that not all people understand that, right? And think we just call and they're going to send an ambulance. No ambulance crew in the EMT and paramedics is going to go if you tell them that they're going to a situation where someone is actively assaulted or armed. And mm-hmm. so the, the default dispatch in many cases is a police officer. And so the police officer is going to get there. And in the Commonwealth, if they believe that the person is legitimately in crisis and they're a threat to themselves or a threat to someone else, they have the authority under um, the Mass General Law, Section 12, to take that person in custody, essentially to effect an arrest, and to bring them to the crisis team, to bring them to an emergency facility um, or a a screening facility Mm -hmm. over their objections and against their will. And so that's kind of the setup. And talking to other departments that have similar programs, the, the hope is that a department has a crisis or has a co program. When the officers get there, recognizing what they're dealing with, they would be able to tap another resource before they make the decision to go hands-on and take somebody in custody and bring in a clinician, a subject matter expert, to explore another option to see if we can avoid that apprehension and that transport.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so when we built the program, I think that's what we all hoped for, and we have that, or that that works. Uh, what we couldn't possibly have hoped for was that the the success that we would have, um, largely because of the model Richard built, but also just because of the, the people that we've been able to bring on board to work with, when our co-responders proactively ante- intercept and anticipate the need for a co-responder response and can either get there before the officers ask for it Mm
2: -hmm.
0: or uh, the officers can get to the point where we now see this that they can recognize based on the dispatch instructions that they're going to need it pre arrival and ask for it or the the one that surprised me the most the co-responder can say we're familiar with that patient you don't need to go at all we've got that (laughs) and they can actually take the call so What we hoped for was a resource that would be available to respond at the request of an officer. What we got is a resource that in many cases can actually replace an officer, uh, either ahead of time or simultaneously. So what does that look like when, you know, the call came into dispatch, it went out over the air, and now one of you or one or more of you is now going to go assist the officers with that call?
5: So I actually was just playing numbers the other night, and um, something that came to my attention that surprised me, I don't, Richard, I don't know about you, um, is that when we look at the number of calls from 2020, almost half of the calls that we responded to didn't come in labeled as mental health calls. Um,
0: Give me an example.
5: So, one <laughs> so the one that comes to mind is we had a um, suspicious person somewhere, um, a suspicious person call come in and I had actually just seen that person two hours before, and based on the description, knew that they were not in fact suspicious. They were confused and needed assistance. They were not um, of danger to anybody or looking to break in. And and that can happen. Mental illness um, can look suspicious if you don't know what you're looking at. Um, and so that was one of those cases where I could say, actually, never mind, I got this, hold on.
0: <laughs> so, so that's one that um, you had firsthand experience with, and, you know, okay, we could, that could make sense. The the one that I think if we looked at, Historically, over the last several years, even pre-COVID, but definitely during COVID, and I know that you've had experience with this because I've seen you do it, is that you know the catch-all that we would code in as unwanted person, mm-hmm. right? So um, we have a person in crisis; they're confused, or you know they're they're in an episode, right? Whatever their diagnosis is, they're they're symptomatic, and they're in a space. Where their behavior makes other people who aren't familiar with that behavior uncomfortable mm-hmm. and so what we get is you know there's someone here and they're doing this and they shouldn't be here um, where, wherever that location is and so now you know, if a police officer goes to that we're going to start to ask some detailed questions because we're going to try to ascertain is this person engaged in criminal trespass mm-hmm. but criminal trespass we need to be able to to form intent mm-hmm. right and so, if there's no intent, there's not much a police officer can do in that situation except offer the person a ride, which just displaces the problem, and then we'll be getting an unwanted person call to the second <laughs> location, and the third, and the fourth.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, and then we get a variety of calls that you know. To, I'll, I'll keep it PG for the show. There, we would consider them hygiene calls, mm-hmm. right? Um, for whatever reason, these these people. Don't have access to facilities, and now they're in close proximity to a public gathering space, and mm-hmm. you know, so um, you know, is that a, a law enforcement issue? Technically, it is. First, it's a health issue, but ultimately, you know, a crime has been committed. But it co- again, it comes back to intent. Mm-hmm. These are not people who need to be taken a thirty-nine Allen, processed in, booked, and thrown in a cell. They need a different scope of services beyond what law enforcement. Is equipped to provide. Mm -hmm. So calls come in on you know pretty much now we're working days and evening shift right. That's correct. Yeah. So calls come in variety of calls, variety of locations, uh, variety of hours, Um, and so you either get called by the officer on the scene or you hear the radio dispatch and you you know self deploy. So when you get there, what is the what does the turnover look like? What does the handover look like? Go ahead, Tony.
4: Well, I think usually, if we're there and waiting, um, we're going to wait for the officers to clear the situation and make sure that it's safe. Um, but a lot of times we might be there before, and we would call in that we're we're nearby or we're standing by if if we're needed. Um, every situation is different. Um, so I guess we we take them as they come. But I think it's helpful if we can engage and again communicate with the person that's there, Um, it might not turn into a crisis you know the person might not get scared and think I'm gonna be arrested now I'm gonna end up being thrown in the car um, which doesn't usually happen I mean but they might be thinking that's gonna happen Um, so I think it it, it can have a calming effect if we show up or we're there and we're able to communicate with them beforehand right, or during. But it's going to be safe. I mean, we're, we're going to take direction from the officer. It's their but scene. And
0: not in uniform. Not correct. with all that stuff <laughs> hanging off of your chest and vest. Not in the right. police car with the lights flashing. It's a, it's a different interaction. Mm-hmm. So I know you were pulling it numbers earlier in the week, uh, because maybe when we get to the end, we'll talk about the grant opportunities. You were pulling some numbers, Richard, you were pulling some numbers. And there's a metric that the team has identified. Um, We looked at it in the past, but I think you've kind of parsed it out and put a more fine point on it in the last several months, is it's time on call, right? Time on call for a co-responder versus time on call for an officer. And I think that's important because these are not quick calls to resolve. So if a police officer is on scene, without the ability to call a co-responder, they're either gonna be there for a very long time attempting to deescalate this, or if call volume is such and the pressure is such, they're gonna make a decision to go hands-on and apprehend very quickly so they can get back in service. When the co-responders are available, those, those are not the only two decision points. There's a third option, There's many sometimes more than a third option. Now, Richard, you pulled some of this out and extracted it. So can you talk about that time on call, uh, You know, the time on call, for the officers when the co-responders are available as opposed to when they're not?
3: Yes, um, what we were looking at is is just that, is time on call as you were pointing out. And and what I have realized through the numbers that we have thus far is that we've been able to save uh, police officers some 17 hours of time on call uh, just within these few months, two and a half months. Uh, and I anticipate that that's going to rise significantly o- over uh, the course of the year. Uh, so with that said, what has happened is, is that once we do arrive, um, whether we're first or second, we're, we're there and with the officers and we deem that, that this is a safe situation. It's, it's settled enough that an officer doesn't need to be there. Uh, we come to that agreement with the officers, with ourselves, and certainly with the individual at hand. Um, and so we'll ask the officers if, there's, if they're comfortable to go ahead and get back to their policing duties and that we will spend more time with that individual w- through assessment <coughs> and creating a disposition uh, you know, that is safe for everyone. And, and hopefully that is uh, lending uh, service to them in the moment um, and then also uh, service afterwards to follow up with someone maybe on an outpatient basis.
0: And just so our listeners understand, what Richard is saying is that in this short period of time, 17 hours that those officers are available to perform other police functions that previously would have been spent trying to interact and de-escalate with these patients. So that's 17 hours that they could go handle another call for service, set up and run some traffic, uh, engage in community outreach, 17 hours that they recaptured that can be reallocated to other issues in the community. That they're better equipped to deal with
4: and chief I think that's part of what I found um, uh, rewarding with doing this job is when you do respond if there's say, a death in the household and the officers can leave and we can remain there and support the family hook them up with services that they might need um, I mean I think that's the stuff that I find rewarding and helpful and allows the officers to get back to doing what they're paid to do and enjoy doing and um, And we can also engage the people that we see in the local establishments that might look different. And they're they're usually not engaged in treatment, so we have that opportunity at that time to try to engage them in treatment, which I think is gonna be helpful in the long run um, so that they aren't recidivists. Um, So those are the, I think, some of the reasons why I decided to come back during the, you know, do the crisis stuff is because I think more people are open to or not open to but they're in crisis so they're looking for direction and we can hopefully give them some so the rewarding part for me
0: so one of the other things that the co-responder team has been involved in and has actually now kind of stepped up and taken a lead in is the department's involvement in what we refer to as our our hub table or our hub meetings so we uh, PPD took the lead on creating our our local Pittsfield hub based on the Chelsea Hub model. It's a multidisciplinary, multi-agency approach to looking at people who might benefit from services from multiple agency, high-risk residents or patients, and putting a team together to kind of provide wraparound services. And Ariel was you know, involved in, in the early beginnings of this, when I said to the participants at the hub table, I don't personally believe the police department is the right agency to be leading this initiative. We should be a participant, but we're going to take the lead on this because so far nobody else is willing to do it. And so it's gone through some fits and starts, but while well, the department is still represented with sworn personnel who are kind of out there um, helping identify people who might be candidates, the management of the hub and kind of the assessment portion you're much better qualified to make these calls than we are so you you've been kind of leading our hub initiative as well
5: what a welcome resource (laughs) because in so many ways it's really what we're doing on the calls right we know this person we know who their dmh worker may be and we know who their caseworker may be and we know that they have an outpatient therapist over here and so it's it's so much of what we were doing and to have a team and a concise time and place is so much more efficient um, so it's really nice to engage the community partners in that way and be more effective now,
0: I think one of our early success stories with the hub and I'm not gonna I won't I will not specifically name the organizations uh, well no I will name one Berkshire County Sheriff's Office because they've been great community partners and yes. are taking a leadership role in that as well but we were blessed and fortunate we got a lot of partners that we didn't normally work with who agreed to come to the table at least for the initial information sharing and even if they said we're not going to participate monthly but we're here give us a call and a lot of those partners had resources that i think a lot of us weren't aware of um and at least in one case we identified a a high-risk person who they had spent one day incarcerated and as a result of the we ran their bop and they spent one day incarcerated uh, community can um, you community Corrections essentially the the mm-hmm. um, public service side of uh, of the court system was able to enroll them as a client and increase exponentially the amount of services that they were available to that client so on one day they weren't receiving any of these services and because they had one day in the house of correction the next day they were and that's the type of stuff we were looking to do with the hub is leverage available resources that people weren't were entitled to, but weren't already receiving. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of things like that where if you can make the connection, the next agency will step up.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's, it's been an interesting couple of years in collaboration and team building and teamwork.
5: Absolutely. And being physically in the same room, I think, allows for movement quicker. Absolutely. you know, Sometimes some of the red tape or processes, if you're all sitting at the same table, you can expedite for the sake of, um, you know, that person in order to receive hub services has to be an imminent danger. And so there's a willingness when you're at the same table to expedite that. Yeah.
0: So as we came into 2023, uh, there was a there was another significant shift in the arena or the, the kind of landscape that we're operating in with this model that we shifted away from the emergency service provider model, which you know, most of us had worked under for most of our careers, and we shifted to what is, I'm going to get this wrong, community-based health center, CBHC, community-based health center model, yes. which again was a change in state regulation, kind of came down, was mandated. Uh, In this case, there was some funding attached to it, which was nice to see for a change. But what that resulted in is the creation of a CBHC uh, in Pittsfield, apart from the emergency department at BMC, uh, where essentially our 12s that would have previously been taken to the emergency department to be screened in mentally and physically, uh, medically, they can now go to this alternative location where they're getting just kind of the focus and attention they need for the crisis, not necessarily for anything else. Uh, and so Berkshire Health Systems it has a psych services unit kind of providing what they're doing. Brian, as the CBHC, has a separate independent location with a separate team. And then in the field, we have our co-responders. And so another shift in kind of the way services are provided and delivered. But the fact that we're not taking people by cruiser or by ambulance to the emergency department which you know you've been there it's not exactly welcoming (laughs) uh is another shift in the way uh things are being provided and and improvements are being made so how's the cbhc partnership going
3: in my opinion it's going quite well Uh, we do have that opportunity now to um Decrease the pressure on the healthcare system by utilizing the CBHC. And so, a lot of our uh, individuals that um, need more service than we can provide in the community in, in a short period of time, uh, there are people now available th- through this program that w- they can be taken to uh, by officers or they can go on their own. It depends on elements of safety. But even Section 12s now uh, can be can arrive at CBHC, which is at 334 Fen Street. Um, it's a nice access and uh, more user friendly, as you were pointing out before.
0: So before I kind of open it up to just final thoughts and our our last uh, segment that we try to finish with in the couple minutes we have left. kind of in the gap between the old co-responder model. I shouldn't have said gap because I'm going to repeat myself. In the gap between the old co-responder model and when we onboarded Richard, based on some of the events that we had looked at over the last couple of years, uh, I pulled together a small internal team, including uh, some of our dispatch staff, some of our operations staff, some of our tactical staff, and Ariel was gracious enough to join us and help us out. And what I wanted to do was a gap analysis of how – Mental health services are accessed in the community, in Pittsfield in particular, but even in the broader Berkshire County community. And so we spent some time in a uh, conference room with a whiteboard and a bunch of um, sticky notes up on the walls. And we tabletopped, if a person in the city is in crisis and you need help, who can you call? And we identified pretty much everybody you could call at that time. And then we identi- we attempted, based on the information we had and some questions we had asked, to identify the workflows within those organizations or those particular places and where the workflows terminated. And Ariel, can you just talk really briefly about what we kind of observed as we put that gap analysis together?
5: Absolutely. So, um, you know, anybody who is familiar with mental illness or substance use, um, Either professionally or personally, I I, you know um, what we identified was that for somebody who is not um, able or willing to engage in the system voluntarily, um, that all roads, (laughs) despite who you initially contact, really lead back to the police department. Um, There's no other mode of helping somebody who you know, due to their illness, isn't able to fully cooperate, Um, and so all all roads led to the same place.
0: so not only not only that, I mean, that was the big takeaway because it was like the big arrow at the top of the page, but what we identified is if you as a resident, as a loved one or a family member are fortunate enough to get someone into services somewhere and they're there and then they become non-compliant, mm-hmm. it didn't matter who our community partner was. It could be the health system. It could be Brian. Uh, it could be some of the other agents. It could be an ambulance provider. Mm-hmm. When their protocols ran out, their response was call the local police, including yeah. the statewide crisis hotline, right? Yeah. They, what we found out was if they ran out of options, if all the numbers that they called didn't answer, their last option was call the local police. And I want us, I just want to mm-hmm. pull that out because like, we're trying really, really hard to extricate ourselves from being the point of contact for me- a mental illness in the community. But, we can't do it by ourselves because ultimately when everybody else is frustrated when everybody else's resources have been diminished they have written a protocol that says now call the police yes. and so we're coming because if you come we won't say no but uh, you know we're happy to do what we can to keep people safe and to work cooperative on this but we should not be the answer to this
4: i may think the other day we had a situation where you know a caring mother trials in crisis she showed up to the front of the police department and just came in and said help yeah. you know I, I just can't do it then help me um, which that was the first time I ever had that happen <laughs> in front of the police department and, and it worked out perfectly you know she was able to get the help she needed and it went very smoothly but it's just you know sort of piggybacks what you're saying it's when they don't know what to do they either call the police come to the police the yep. police get involved
0: mm-hmm. and we're not going to say no
4: Right. right
3: right I think that's how this uh, whole program was generated is just because of what you've just said chief is is that um, people rely on the police uh, you know oftentimes even in the last resort of course and and um, we're here now to to assist with the officers to to help make those hard decisions and move forward mm-hmm.
2: all
0: right in the few minutes we have left final thoughts anything else you'd like to add Richard
3: well Again, I think, you know, the expansion, we have um, two clinicians that we've hired, uh, and we cover seven days a week now, which I'm very proud of, Um, but there are gaps in that. And, of course, Ariel is here to to fill some of that gap, and and we appreciate that, of course, as well. But there is so much more that is needed, and so, um, you know, we look to our stakeholders, and, and and ask you know for some assistance with this because we do need to move forward we need to grow this program it's been successful so far and there's a lot more that we can do uh, if we had uh, just more clinicians to be able to do that
0: I mentioned it in passing briefly we we're working on the grant we're gonna pull some more resources in here so we have some more opportunities I I, I'm gonna share this with you like we got a little pushback from the grant door about the initial submission and I don't I don't say this to make you feel bad like, we, we actually used your salaries as the baseline for what we asked for, and they came back because it's Boston. And they were like, what? <laughs> These are way too low. It's like, well, welcome to Berkshire County. Uh, we, we all agree with that. When I go to a chief's meeting and they find out what they make, they laugh. Or uh, what I make. All right, Tony, final thoughts.
4: Uh, I Just the way I see what we do is we're another tool on the officer's belt. It's usually the way I like to see it is we're there if, they, if it's needed. Um and all the interfaces I've had with the officers is, it's been great I mean it's a great bunch of guys and they all care tremendously about what they do and do it professionally thank you for that yeah
0: Arielle final thoughts
5: yeah just uh, going off of that I'm tremendously grateful to be part of this team and um, the patrol units are phenomenal and we could not do anything that we do without them yeah.
0: thank you for that lieutenant Hill thought our plans for the weekend
3: get outside
0: nice yeah Richard plans for the weekend
3: also the same I think uh, and certainly spending some time quality time with my family
0: nice Tony plans for the weekend grandchildren awesome it's mm-hmm. awesome Arielle plans for the weekend
5: I am in the process of opening a women's recovery home and so that is what we are launching this weekend and we will be moving women in so work Yes. work for the weekend <laughs> okay <laughs>
0: I am not a clinician, yeah. but you need to talk to someone about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Take I'm, care of the caretaker. I'm looking forward to this nice weather this weekend. I'm gonna, yeah. Gabe just had his first birthday, so we can get him outside for some outside adventures. I'm nursing a bum wing, so my training is limited, but we've got a big uh, advanced concept seminar Saturday afternoon, and I'm hoping I've got some more blue belts coming out of that. Mm-hmm. So looking forward to this. Thanks for tuning in this morning. It's this been an incredible episode. Until next time, stay safe. Stay healthy, but most importantly, be kind. We're 10-8.